Hi everyone, welcome to Leukemia Chatters. So we are still at home unfortunately, but that doesn't stop us bringing stories and advice from leukemia patients and that's what today's podcast is going to be about. I'm Charlotte, I'm the Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care and today I'm joined by James. Hello. And Rosie. Hi. Hi both, thank you for your time. Um, So today we wanted to talk a little bit about um, what it's like to be the parent of a child who's been diagnosed with leukemia. So that's quite a uh, specific sort of set of circumstances, but also one that comes with perhaps unique challenges. So um, it's going to be a really, really interesting topic today. Um, Shall we start really briefly with just going over what the, the story of of each of your child's diagnosis and treatment was and and just a little background for anybody who may not be familiar with you guys. So should we start with James maybe? Um, So we spent quite a bit of time with Frankie in and out of hospital. He kept getting quite unwell. Um, Lots of temperatures, lots of sort of just little sicky bugs and stuff like that. And these sort of weird rashes coming up in his arm. Um, After about three months, three, four months back and forth from the hospital, we sort of there was a really bad rash come up um, we finally managed to get sort of a blood test done and that's where they started suspecting he might have uh, a form of leukemia um, his platelets were really low um, and then about a week later after further tests and more hospital stays we finally got the diagnosis of JMML um, mm-hmm. with him. In terms of how long it took for you to get that diagnosis was it like a considerable period of time were we talking like months and years or so so yeah sort of he was showing symptoms for probably for about six months um as parents we didn't have a clue that they were actually symptoms of something a little bit more serious we thought he just had a bit of a rubbish immune system and just kept picking up lots of bugs um and that seemed to be what the hospital and the doctors thought for a while as well yeah. um so and then so that was about six months and then the the week where they were doing the extra tests on him to try and find out exactly what he had that probably felt like another six months as well whilst we waited for the results to come back yeah I'm sure it did and Rosie is that is it similar story for you and Rufus in terms of how long and the diagnosis process and all that sort of thing no it's actually quite the opposite it was really sudden um so it was literally just one day that he came out in a petite kill rash um all over his body little really small little pinprick dots um and yeah I thought it was quite unusual so I I went to the GP and and he just suspected it was something viral um and basically just sent us home and said he's he's fine you know if there's anything uh to worry about we can always do a blood test in a couple of weeks um so I went home and it just played on my mind a little bit um the rash started to spread as well so when my husband came home from work we just decided to go to A&E and he was seen by about seven different doctors who couldn't really quite you know put their finger on what was up um and then a particular pediatrician decided to do a full blood count um in A&E and yeah, within half an hour, we would we were taken into like this private room, and and they said that he had leukemia cells in blood. So it was it it happened all in one evening. Wow. It was really sudden. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, and yeah, that was it. In within the space of like six hours, we were from normality to that, and yeah. yeah. So, if I guess with the benefit of hindsight, did, is there anything mm. sort of before the rash that made you think something yeah. was up? Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, exactly. Like hindsight, it's a lovely thing. Um, he he had you know quite a lot of bruises, but mainly on his legs um, and his arms. And he was like any three year old boy, pretty clumsy, you know, playful. So that I didn't think was unusual in a toddler. Um, and he was also randomly sick one day, but we had all had um, a bug at the time anyway. So we just put it all down to things that he'd picked up um, at nursery um, because it was February and everything was going around and yeah it just because he was himself other than that we you know we didn't really think anything of it he had temperatures but he was like visibly poorly with um, you know some sort of virus what we thought at the time Um, so it just didn't seem unusual Um, and yeah he, he was he was himself other than that. So it wasn't really until that rash came up that it prompted me to, yeah, look look further into it, I suppose. And would you say you were thinking about leukaemia when you saw the rash? Did you know anything about leukaemia or is it one of those things where it was more like meningitis or something everybody yeah. knows about? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did like the glass test to see if the rash would blanch um and it didn't so yeah I was I was a little bit alarmed but at the same time you know not not too worried because he was so well he seemed completely normal um and I think that's probably why the GP was you know pretty sure that he was okay because he was in the GP's office running around playing with everything you know like um yeah, he and they even said, like the doctor said, if there was anything seriously up, he he would be limp and floppy, and um, you know he he would be sleepy all the time, and yeah. So, so obviously we've got our spot leukemia campaign that sort of tries to raise awareness of the fact these symptoms that perhaps look not so serious could be mm. something serious. Is that important to both of you guys to try and? raise awareness among other parents now that yes it is probably going to be not something serious but mm. consider something else does that make sense is yeah that important to you yes definitely yeah yeah really important yeah and um it, it it has actually worked like the stuff that I've shared so like your content that campaign um I've shared that quite a lot on my of my personal social media and stuff and I have had probably about four sets of parents um approach me like um privately to say you know can you look at this picture of of this this rash or these marks that have come up on my child or um you know they've had they've had fevers at night for the last few days and it's been ongoing um you know they've they've had all sorts of problems and and people have said you know what do you think I should do you know because they've read about you know our story and the symptoms on the campaign and everything that I've shared and it is because of that that people maybe are considering you know mm. worse the things I don't know but it works 
James, what was the reaction like after you shared your story for our campaign? Did you get some feedback from people you knew as well? Yeah, so we got we got a lot of feedback from people we knew. And then we also ended up with a few people that were at the early stages of their journey um, getting in touch with us. And um, there's one lady in particular whose son also had JMML and sort of it, it was especially helpful for my wife, Jazz, sort of talking to someone else that was going through it. Um, sort of the, the same sort of, they were a couple of months behind us with the transplant and everything like that. But yeah, it was really nice for her to meet someone and talk to her um, and then discuss the symptoms and what was going on with the children um, during that time. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, sorry, carry on. No, that's right. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was actually funny what Rosie said about um, the parents coming up to you and sort of saying, oh, about uh, sort of such and such has had a temperature. Um, uh, and having night sweats and got these signs. So I almost sort of wanted to move away from it a little bit because you almost become Mr. Doom and Gloom if you tell somebody that, oh, no, you should get that, get maybe go to the doctor and get that checked out. Your friend might go, oh, God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. We hear that with adults as well. You don't want to – and it's, it's challenging in the campaign. You don't want to come across as everything is serious. It's definitely going to mm. be leukaemia. But um, at the same time – I guess British people don't ask for help from a GP as much as they should. So, um, yeah, it's difficult balance to strike that one, definitely. Um, so I guess what you said segues nicely into um, sort of the main topic of today's podcast, because we, when we last told both your stories, I guess we were really focusing on on Frankie and Rufus's story and, and what they'd been through as, as patients. But today we wanted to talk more about the impact on yourselves and and your partners and, and things like that. So looking back on, I guess we'll start with, with the diagnosis phase. As a as a parent, what was that time like for both of you? That Rosie, do you want to start this time? Um yeah, so because there was not really much lead up to the diagnosis, it was like a shock, you know just an in, in instant shock um it yeah it it just I don't know it it was just the most frightening experience um we've ever had and it really just puts everything into perspective all of a sudden um I was also um I just found out I was pregnant at the time so yeah, I just felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders all of a sudden. And, um, yeah, yeah it, you, you just don't know what to think about first. It, all you can think about is whether your child's going to live or die um, because, you know, that diagnosis of, of any cancer, you immediately just think it's a death sentence now. And that's bad, really. Like when, once you know about how well treatments work when you're in, in that world, you know, you, you don't necessarily think that anymore. But as an outsider, when you get that news, you do think it. And it, it just it's like a physical pain um, to get that news. It, it really rips into you. And, yeah, it, just like nothing... I can't describe anything else like it. It's just horrible. Yeah. And James a, probably, yeah. Nice. I was just going to say before we move on to James, as a as a parent, I guess, is it when you come uh, have a shock like that that affects your child, is it like it's also happening to you because of that sort of special bond? 
Is that something that's fair to say? Would you be as shocked as if it had happened to you? Or are you more shocked because it's happened to your, to your son? I think I was more shocked that it was happening to my son rather than me, actually. He was, yeah. you know, 14, 15 months old when we found out. Um, you, you don't expect it. It's, and like Rosie said, it hits you like a, like a train, sort of just absolutely just running into you. Um, so we, we obviously, when we first found out, they were just suspecting it might be leukaemia. Um, and then we had the six, seven day wait for them to diagnose him fully. Um, so the news that they thought it might be leukaemia really hit us. And then that six, seven days wait, whilst they told us that they were looking into it. And every day, sort of, you'd speak to the nurse and they went, well, you know, if normally when it's leukaemia, it shows really quickly. So every day it might be, it might mean that it's something else. So sort of just hold on to that and you're holding on to this hope that it's not. And then when they tell you, it's almost, it's, it's a bit of a double whammy. So when, when they confirmed that it was, we were relieved in a way because we had, we knew what it was and they were able to come up with a plan to fight it. Um, because those six, seven days, you're just there in limbo thinking something's hurting them, something's, something's not going right. And we can't, we're just sitting here waiting like whilst it attacks him. Um, and then obviously that confirmation that it is, it just, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And from that initial shock of diagnosis, obviously with sort of these types of leukemia, you sort of go straight into treatment usually, and it's all a bit, a bit of a whirlwind. Um, what sort of treatments did, did each of, each of your sons have and did you were you able to sort of comprehend what was going on or was it still a bit of a blur as you moved through each stage the the initial plan with frank was it, it was always just to have a bone marrow transplant that, that that was the plan at first unfortunately uh whilst we were waiting to get everything prepped get a date booked in for the for the bone marrow transplant everything seemed to develop a lot more um and they needed to start him on a different type of treatment before they could do the bone marrow transplant so that was it, it that was about eight weeks in hospital then and then we were due to come out of hospital um and go uh, for a couple of days and go straight into the bone marrow transplant unfortunately in the meantime our other daughter our other child our daughter sky she got chicken pox um which then delayed everything for the transplant by another three weeks um, so you're sitting there watching it come back again, and then we finally managed to start the the, the transplant. Mm. And, but as a parent, and you're trying to understand all this sort of complicated technical stuff that the doctors are saying to you, is that particularly difficult at this emotional time? Did you find that particularly hard to sort of comprehend? I don't know, Rosie, if you want to comment after yeah. James as well. Yeah, so um, they, they were really good. At keeping you informed on what the treatments were, I found the nurses were a lot better at explaining what was going on, how it would affect him. Necessarily, they were a bit better than the doctors were. I must admit, they sort of put it in a little bit more simpler terms for us. Um, and it was always very much sort of when when they first told you what the treatment was, it was always sort of like seemed to be quite sort of wow, this is really going to hit him, um, quite bad news. And then as as sort of that initial shock of what it would do to him faded off a bit and the nurses explained, right, well, that's going to hit at this time, but 
12 hours after that, he's not going to be showing as many symptoms as what he is. Um, and yeah. How about you, Rosie? How did you find the, the treatment process? Um, all that information? Yeah, it, it was an overwhelming amount of information, um, straight away, really. Um, when he was first admitted to intensive care, um, he we we had to wait about twenty four hours to get a confirmed diagnosis whether they whether it was AML or ALL, and it was ALL. So once they had that, um, it was he didn't really start chemotherapy until um, a couple of days later because they had to get a central line fitted. Um, so it was like one wave of information about what a central line was and why he needed that. Um, and then the second wave of info was um, obviously what the the diagnosis of ALL meant and, you know, the, the biology of it in a nutshell, I guess, they gave us. Um, and then, yeah, the, the timeline of the chemotherapy he was going to be having, um, it, it doesn't really go in. You read it and people tell you and they'll tell you like over and over again, like, during that first couple of days but it, it just you can't register all of it it's it's kind of you're just exasperated with all this like medical terminology all of a sudden you, do, you can't really make sense of it um and you've had no sleep and you're just completely wiped out with stress so yeah it's a lot it's it's a lot to take in and, and you don't really start coming to terms with what things mean until probably like the couple of weeks after when you've actually got time to process all of that mm. and James mentioned he found the nurses particularly helpful and that at that point is there anyone you reached out to at, at that point that you found particularly helpful yeah actually well, the nurses yeah definitely like the same for us they were um you know they're, they're just a lot more like personable sometimes in like the way they explain things, but also the play therapists um, on the oncology ward were amazing. They, you know, they, they would come around with a bear that had a central line and explain to Rufus how it, you know, that you're going to have this soon and um, this is what they'll do with it. And, and even I was listening like, mm, yeah, like, <laughs> you know taking it all in as well it was just as helpful for us as it was for him so um yeah I found their work to be just yeah amazing really and just so helpful and um a lot calmer than you know the the scary way that other things get explained to you they you know yeah definitely and I guess one You've both, you've both kind of hinted at this, uh, particularly James, when you mentioned the chicken pox or, um, delaying Frankie's treatment. But clearly this all massively disrupts normal, everyday family life. How, James, do you want to start with it? How did you cope with that massive upheaval to, to start with? Yeah, so obviously there's there's four of us. Um, and sort of we... We really struggled at first. Obviously, we're both trying to come to terms with it. Which we've got. Well, she was four years old at the time. Sky, so we're trying to explain to her what's going on as well. Um, all the while, you you're sort of in the hospital with Frank. So we we relied a lot on grandparents as well, sort of looking after Sky. Um, 
but only one of you can stay in the hospital as well, can't you? So um, Jasmine was going home every night sort of to stay with Sky and help her. And all of a sudden, like you say, we've got, we went eight, nine years, never sort of spending a night apart to every night we're apart. One of us is in the hospital. One of us is staying sort of elsewhere. Um, technology obviously helped um, a little bit with FaceTime and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it gets very lonely, sort of, especially when your partner leaves for the night and sort of you, you've got to say goodbye and you're there and he's get he's getting the treatment, she's gone home. So everyday life just went, it went completely out the window and sort of the few days where I really struggled when I went home. Um, so I spent most of my time in the hospital and I found the going home side of things really lonely, really sort of obviously spent the time with Sky and we had, sort of went out for daddy-daughter dates, really tried to make it special whenever I saw her, take her out for dinner. Always her choice, always McDonald's. Um, with... <laughs> nice and healthy. Um, <laughs> he thought that was the best place in the world to eat. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it, re- it really did affect it. Sort of, I, I missed her loads, but I knew when I was at home, I wasn't in a great, I wasn't in a great place to sort of leave the hospital and go home. So I just sort of, stayed there where I felt like I was making a difference where I felt like I could sort of mm. really help Frankie out a bit more yeah is that is that something you can relate to Rosie that the being split between home and hospital and everything like that yeah um I mean I think we we were lucky in one way to not yet have the second child to um think about um so you know we at least we had like the the eight months to prepare for that um so yeah it it was yeah it's so isolating it doesn't really matter where you are you you just don't feel connected to anyone anymore or the or the world it's you're just in this bubble um and yeah it would you would be waiting for the next day to come where um, Tom, my husband, would come up to the ward and spend the day with us, and it used to just go by in a flash when he was there. And then he'd go, and yeah, you just you just sit there and you, you're alone with your thoughts again, um, and all the beeping of the machines, and it it's just um, yeah, it's, it's super lonely. Like James said, you you just I don't, I never really felt comfortable wherever I was because it if you if I was at home I was by myself um and yeah hospital environment you you can never ever relax in there it's yeah there's always going on in there isn't there and those the beeping of those machines it haunts me to this day yeah yeah same (laughs) I'll never forget it I never ever forget that tune of the of the um IV machines Yeah. So, I mean, James, you've spoken about grandparents, but Rosie, did you also find the rest of your family really? I know you've spoken about it being lonely, and, and I'm sure it must mm. be since it, it's a sort of a something that's happening just to your little family in, in of itself. But what about the rest of your family and friends? Did they come along and, and try to try to help? How how did that work out for you? Yeah. Um, they would they were amazing um my mum and and stepdad uh well at the time where we were living um we weren't in Wales then we were in Suffolk so they were in Wales um so a really really uh long way from us um 
but they they did come down pretty much every weekend um to, to be with us and my mum stayed with us from the diagnosis night for a good three weeks um just to be there for support um and then my sister as well and her family and you know her two children were literally Rufus's lifeline his cousins they they just perked him up every time I don't really know what he'd have done without them really um so yeah that we we did have we did have a lot of support um rally around us um but it's it is a funny thing you know you you do you have a lot of support but you you just you don't really know what you've earned to get to get it all it's a really weird thing like you'll get all these gifts and um people would just do so much for you and you and and you just it just feels really odd I can't really describe it it's it's a really weird feeling having all that um yeah especially when you can't really think about anything else or have a normal conversation with people because you're just you're just um overwhelmed with what's going on Mm -hmm. um yeah James can you relate to that feeling of, of not sure yeah I'm not sure how to accept all that help but I guess some it, sometimes it feels like you feel a little bit guilty accepting all that help mm. is that something you can relate to as well yeah definitely so yeah we had sort of like when I stayed at home there was a bit of a network of mums as well so a lot of Jazz's friends and I'd, with a little girl I can't do her hair or anything like that and the the hoover trick you see on YouTube doesn't work so I'd, on the <laughs> On the way down to the school, we'd stop up at one of the parents' houses. They'd help me do Sky's hair um, and get her looking lovely for school um, and I'd sort of drop her off. But sort of we'd come home some nights and one of our friends would have cooked us dinner and dropped it and drop it off to us. And, yeah, you're right. You, you don't really feel deserving of it half the time, And but it's, it's really appreciated, really sort of. You can't put into words how much you appreciate it or what is actually done for you but to come home and sort of not have to worry about going out and getting getting food all the time or sort of the little visits you get in the hospital as well sort of our friends with their kids obviously before the transplant when people could visit us um the visits that perked Frankie up it was and he was only a year and a half at the time obviously but he's still seeing other little kids come in and play with him and it just meant the world yeah I didn't want to sort of stray into stereotypes or anything like that, but James, you sort of brought up a, the idea that it might be a different experience for sort of each parent separately. And I don't know, Rosie, whether you wanted to comment as to whether you and your other half, Tom, found that you were both experiencing something slightly different at the time. Hmm. Um, I don't know. We... <laughs> We, we really did, I think, more than ever in our whole relationship feel like a real team. Like we were just glued at the hip, really. And we we always talked about things and made sure it was all out in the open by the end of the day. Um, so anything that was worrying each, like either of us, we'd make sure we spoke about it. Um, he has always been the more rational and... Um, calmer person um whereas I've you know I've always had a little bit of anxiety but I I was really you know I would 
I would get really, really worried at the, at the littlest things. And, um, you know, he, he it's really good, really, that he would always pull me back into the, you know, look at the facts and, um, you know, just keep me on a good level. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think... I don't know whether he just kept it all in or whether he just did deal with it a lot, a lot more calmer than I did. Um, but yeah, like you say, with stereotypes, I don't know if that is like a dad stance and then I had like the the typical mum, you know, I don't know. Mm. Felt, felt a little bit like sort of um, probably similar to how you've just described. Um, mm. Maybe Jazz wouldn't describe it that way, but um, felt there was a lot of sort of, when when they were delivering the bad like well not bad news but they were delivering the news of what they were doing next and how it would affect him and stuff like that it, it felt a lot of the time that one of us would pick up on one of us would pick up on a lot more of the negative stuff and and the other one would sort of like just listen a little more and be able to say well they've said that's going to happen but they've actually said how they're going to combat it as well um, and explain that so. Like you said, the teamwork joined at the hip and really sort of like supporting each other. That that was the most important thing for us. That that's how we really got through it was just by sort of just being there for each other. And when one was having that little bit of a wobble and a panic, just talking, um, really talking to each other and saying, "Look, what is worrying you? What what about what they've said has worried you? Because I've taken this from it, and it seems pretty positive to me." Um, mm sort of seemed to help both of us. And I think we'd both have those little wobbles where the other one turned around and just got the other one on the right track. And we've talked a sort of relationship between you and your other half and you and the sort of wider family and friends, but would you say the whole experience has changed your relationship with sort of Rufus and Frankie themselves? I don't know. Rosie, do you want to start this time? Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I'll always, you know, just hold him, like, so close to me, like, all my, all my life, you know, not that I wouldn't anyway, but there's there's just something where it felt like we were so close to, to not having him in our life anymore. It, it really just, it just makes you look at them with so much gratitude and, you know, I'm just so thankful he's here. Um, I guess I guess throughout the really intense part of the treatment I I I was just I just wanted to be with him all the time and I just hovered around him all the time um and you know he he might not have wanted me to be that clingy but I was um and yeah you know now now he's literally just finished treatment um I don't know we I I guess we have like any any normal relationship with him now he's he's like a different boy to what he was then um you know he's he's six going on seven now as opposed to three years old so he was more like a baby to me then um but yeah we we have like we've we always had a really honest um relationship with him during the treatment so I didn't like to you know, trick him into like feeling a security when he was going to treatment. I would be honest and say, this is what they're going to do because we tried the whole sweet talk in it and it didn't work. Um, and I just felt awful for it. So yeah, we, we've just always upheld that really honest and straightforward 
you know, explaining things to him and, and he's he's really like mature and sensible because of it. Mm. What about you, James? Do you think it's changed you and Frankie's relationship? Oh, Frankie gets away with murder. He is. <laughs> <laughs> he's um he's he's so cheeky, like cheekiest little boy um ever. And he's really confident. Um I think that's what it's brought out in him, just a big confidence to speak to grown-ups because he spent a lot of his younger life just purely surrounded by sort of nurses, grown-ups and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, he de- definitely gets sort of like, I feel like he gets a little bit of an easier ride than maybe he would do um, if we hadn't gone for that. He just, but same with Skye, like Sky, our daughter, I think both of them, it, it makes you realise a little bit more about what's important with them. Um, and sort of actually making memories, letting them be themselves and sort of a little bit more is probably a little bit more important than whether they've done their homework straight away and sort of whether they've got all their spellings right. So it just gives you a bit of a different perspective, I think. Mm. And I guess we're talking a lot more in society about mental health recently and I can imagine this has had a a huge impact on on your mental health um going through all this we've talked a bit about how you've uh, you both talked about feeling sort of lonely and, and and separated from the world during the treatment phases how about sort of now and moving forward do you think it's had a lasting impact on your mental health rosie um yeah to be honest um I think in the last year of his treatment um it it, that was the worst that I've been um it really just it it all just started to to weigh down on me like the because it the whole treatment um in total was three and a half years so I think I had dealt with it and kept on top of it for that first bit and then literally at the last you know the last bit I just um it all I just gave way to it all and um it brought out just this awful health anxiety um that's like the form it took really and and I was I was obsessed with with cancer who you know have I got it every five minutes I thought it was me um I would be checking the kids all the time and you know it would just be one symptom and that would be it I'd be off on on the on the whole thing about having it and was always in the doctors and yeah it just it got too much I just couldn't I just couldn't manage it and I felt terrible all the time every day um and yeah I just finally decided to get some counselling um, and that really set me on the right path again. It, it was really hard at first and it wasn't easy to to bring everything back up again. Um, but it did it did really make me realise why I had the behaviours that I had developed and, and I could understand it and it made me stop being so hard on myself because I realised that the things I was thinking and, and feeling, actually, it's not my fault. It's, it's because of a trauma. And um, yeah, it just it just made me tap into like my patterns of thinking a bit better, um, 
and yeah it helped me a little bit and and then you know eventually like I have I have got some medication now which has really really helped and I I finally feel um you know good actually and I feel a lot lighter um I'm not I'm not you know obsessing about things anymore so I I, I probably should have done that a bit sooner but I don't know why I just got into this mentality of that I had to fight through it and because we just you know plowed through this whole thing with Rufus that that was just part of it and I had to just get through it and that I would but yeah you do you just you have to accept um that you need some help at some point um and I did have some encouragement from family as well that you know it's time to to really like think about you and you know focus on my well-being as well Mm. um yeah what about you James have you felt that lasting impact since treatments ended still yeah I think I think when you're going through the treatment you're you're in this survival mode and you you you've got that purpose you're plowing through it to get to get to an end result aren't you you just keep surviving you're in survival mode and you do whatever it takes and then when you get to the end of it it's it almost felt like a little bit of an emptiness, a little bit of, you know, you fill your time up, you think about it. There was a lot of guilt there on my part because I spent a lot of time away from Skye, our daughter, and I felt like I'd almost sort of sidelined her a bit. I felt like she hadn't, you know, sort of seven, eight months of her life had gone past and I'd barely spent much, any time with her. And it was probably about two months after Frankie finished his treatment that me and Jazz discussed it and we went into get some counselling together um, to discuss just what had gone on. Um, And we realised, I think whilst we were going through the treatment, we talked loads um, and we were really supportive of each other. When we got to the other side of it and it had finished, sort of, we realised once we had this first counselling session that actually we hadn't talked about any of our feelings regarding it and we just sort of both shut them down. Um, And it's what Rosie said, it's, crazy that you said it because it was almost word for word Jasmine's experience um afterwards with the health anxiety um what what you went through was exactly the same as what my wife went through um with everything and like you say sort of we once we had our counseling together that's when it started showing in Jazz this health anxiety these extra thoughts that were going through her head the extra worries look at looking for it in herself looking for it in the kids and obsessing over it and you know, Jazz Jazz went for another, I think it was another six, seven months worth of therapy, uh, sort of counselling um, after we'd finished our one um, to really help get over that and realise that it is, you know, it's normal to feel like that afterwards. And you, so. Mm. So uh, I don't think we've got a, much of a culture here of, of sort of encouraging people to seek that professional talking therapies, but it sounds like both of you would sort of really recommend that is, is does that is that a fair reflection of your 100%. feelings about counselling yeah I think um right right up until I went in that room as well I was almost I was trying to get out of it I was trying to think no I don't need it it's not it's not something for me and it was the words of a former manager of mine and he he turned around to, he went through something with his son when he was younger um not the same but it was a really bad illness and he didn't take up the option of counselling 
And it was his words uh, just before I sort of took that moment and thought, no, I'm going to walk out of here. I don't want to do it. Um, I thought, no, the one thing he said was that he wished that he always went through with it. Um, and I'd done that first session and I didn't look back afterwards. I just thought it really, really helped. I can't say how much it helped enough. Yeah, that's it. That's great. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about before we sort of come to sort of some tips and advice and then um, where you're at now is sort of the aspect of finances and work and the, the practical aspects of trying to look after a family whilst everything is on hold, as we've discussed. Rosie, is that something that you found particularly difficult? Were you working at the time? Did you did you see a financial impact? Was that really hard? Yeah, I, um, so yeah, I was working and I just had to um, immediately take um, my remaining holiday that I had at the time. Um, and then I went on a very early maternity leave. Um, so, you know, luckily it wasn't um, too bad for me, but for my husband, he was self-employed. Um, so, yeah, that was our main in- income was just suddenly gone. Um, after the first sort of month of treatment, he he started to, you know, filter back into work. Um, so doing the odd day, you know, here and there when we didn't have to go into hospital. Um, and, yeah, so it, it was just like keeping our heads above water, really. But we, you know, we... We had a lot of help um, financially, you know, from from family and friends. And like it, that's where that whole guilt thing comes back into it. You know, people just were so desperate to help us that, um, you know, it's just, yeah, we, we were so grateful. Can't ever be thankful enough for that because, you know, it, it paid, helped pay our rent and the bills and the petrol money to get to hospital and back um, multiple times a week. So... Yeah, um, it it was definitely a massive worry, um, and it's not really what you want to think about. You know, in the first couple of days after getting the diagnosis, you don't actually want to think about, oh, what about work? You know, <laughs> but you have got, you know, you have got to think about it at some point. And you know, you'd it's it's great to have. You know, we had help from Clicksarge and the charity um, with a grant and stuff like that as well. So um it 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 took the weight off a little bit of the weight off our shoulders yeah but thinking about the long-term financial impact was was quite worrying we didn't really know where where everything was going to go we didn't know where we'd be in in a month's time so yeah James is that something that you experienced as well as a family it's it's something almost that it, I had the opposite experience actually. So I'm I'm not self-employed and neither is Jazz. Um both of our workplaces, especially mine actually, my my the company that I worked for paid my way they carried on paying my wage for the entire time I was off. Um and they gave us a little bit extra each month to help pay for our travel into London, um, which is something I'd be eternally grateful for. Um what I would say though is whilst we still I was still getting that money in sort of from work. Jazz's work were paying her sort of like she went off with stress and sort of paid her sick pay. Um, 
what I would say is even whilst that was being paid, there was still quite a financial strain on us um, because you're still running the house. You still put none of your household bills stop. Nothing. You've got to keep paying your rent. You've got to keep paying your gas and electric. And that's still so at the end of the month, that's still coming out, all of those bills. Um, plus sort of your sort of eating in two different places. So sort of I was in the hospital and Frankie's food was obviously covered. Um, but sort of we were still going out, getting lunch, getting dinner. Um, and you, you can't do your normal Asda shop, which costs you £80 a week or something like that. You're going out and paying for lunch every day, going out and paying for dinner. And, and actually that half hour you get together, you want to make the most of it. So you do want to eat something sort of nice or, you know, sort of and spend a bit of time together. Um, yeah, it certainly had an impact on us still, even though sort of we were being paid relatively similar wages to what we were getting beforehand. And what about um, not so much the money aspect of work, but what about having to leave work for like a considerable period of time? And if you've gone back, was it was it difficult to sort of get back into the normal life after so much? Yeah, so. So the, the, we had conversations before. They they kept in touch with me and everything like that. Um, obviously, once you've had the bone marrow transplant, it, it's not done and over sort of straight away. Um, there were still months and months. We were still for the first two three two months. We were going back back on a weekly basis to Great Ormond Street to have checks and then make because Frankie's type is one that it quite commonly comes back in the first six months. Um, so we were still going back, getting them reviewed, getting them checked out. He still had his Hickman line in place, which meant sort of these they still needed dressings changes. Um, they were really accommodating, though. They so they kept in touch when I was going back. They allowed me to go back on sort of a more part time basis, um, sort of sort of sixteen to twenty hours a week, so I could still attend all the appointments and everything. Um, so um, yeah, sort of we were really lucky with how they sort of treated me and helped help me get back into sort of easing to work rather than sort of this sudden demand to just drop the family again and go back and sort of work 40 hours a week. Um, so I was really lucky. So just to sort of end the podcast nicely, it, do you, Rosie, what's your, I don't know, maybe not just one tip, but what's your one or two or three main tips or advice you'd like to give us like someone listening who's at any stage of this process um so especially if they're at the beginning um you literally can only take it one day at a time it it just it's just detrimental to think too far ahead um you literally just have to deal with what's in front of you on that day because it's so unpredictable. Like the, the you know, Rufus would be great one day in hospital. We'd be looking at going home the next day and then something would happen and we wouldn't then have been home for another week. So, um, yeah, that would, that would always feel so awful, like when you really get your hopes up for something. Um, so, yeah, just eventually learn to, to just focus on what's happening right now. Don't even think about tomorrow until you're there um, because it just, it just helps you manage it. You've, you've got so much on your plate right now that you don't, you don't need to add extra. You've just got to focus and, and do the best you can at the time. Um, and um 
you know, especially with like parenting as well, when you go through it, just don't put to put too much pressure on yourself because there is the whole thing of, you know, oh, you mustn't, you know, treat them any differently to how you would normally. Um, you know, we got that a lot. Um, but just, yeah, just don't, don't give yourself added pressure. You just don't need it. Um, you, if you want to be like the best you can be, that is, that's literally just to give yourself the easiest ride you can to look after your child. So, um, yeah, I would say that. And then, you know, just from my own experience, when you're, when you are coming to the end of the treatment, um, perhaps start preparing to look into therapy and counselling, even if you feel okay. Um, just just look into it. It's, there's no harm in, in doing that. Um, you know, you don't want to get too late. Maybe like I think I was probably a bit too late to, to do that for myself. Um, so, yeah, just start thinking about uh, look, you know, looking after your your mental well-being um, as as you're coming towards the end, so that you can heal from what's just happened. Um, that's that's probably the best advice I could give. I reckon, yeah. And James, did you have anything to to add from your experience? Any tips or anything like that? I think I think the best tip I got along the way, and that I can pass on to someone else is sort of when, when you first find out when you when you first find out when you're getting the treatment plan together and everything like that one thing that really overwhelmed us was the amount of people that were texting um calling asking what's going on you tell one person and by the time you spoke you tell your brother and by the time you spoke to your sister she already knew knew about something but didn't know the whole story and what you were trying to get across was ending up people were worrying about because they were getting half stories from other people. So we, we set up a great, a, a big WhatsApp group with all the people in it that would need to know what, what, what was going on, what the next treatment plan was. And we'd pen a message on that and send it. So everyone received it at the same time. Every, any questions that were asked, we made sure they asked them all on that group. So everyone got the same story and all of it. It just, it took so much pressure off us having to, be on our phones all the time, talking to people, explaining individually to everyone. Um, so it took a lot of pressure off us as parents and people that were going through it. Um, probably the best advice I, I got and could give to anyone else and just talk about it. Sort of pe- people will listen to you. They won't think you're moaning. They won't think you're whinging. They just want to, you know, make sure their friend's okay or their brother's okay. And sort of they, they just listen to you and they don't have to have an answer. They don't like very few people will have any answers for you, if anyone. Um, but it just helps getting off your chest. Absolutely. And um, obviously, I want to end on if anybody out there is listening and needs support of any kind, please do reach out to us at Leukemia Care and we'll, um, we'll do our best to, to help you. Um, so, I guess all that remains is to say thank you guys for your time. Very much appreciate it. Um, yeah it can't be easy to share this sort of thing but um without sharing it obviously it wouldn't be possible to help others so honestly thank you very much for that um and thank you for listening everyone and i'll see you on the next one thank you for listening to this episode of leukemia chatters for more information and support from leukemia care go to our website leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088 010444. See you next month.